This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and today I am joined by Jean Ross, who today is in Wanaka. Welcome, Jean. Thank you, Sam. Jean, you've been providing us with lots of good insights from your conversations with the rural nurses. Yes, I have. This is um, this is the third um, radio interview now, Sam. And, and what are you doing? You've, you're, you're phoning people up that you know, or how are you finding these people? Oh, no. So, so these um, New Zealand rural nurses are the nurses that some of them that contributed to the book um, called Stories of Nursing in Rural Aotearoa, A Landscape of Care that I published um, uh, last year. And they supplied um, their real experiences over 15 years of rural nursing as part of storytelling. Fantastic. Well, let's hear from them. We've got two today from yep. Queenstown and the West Coast. Yes. Should we go to Queenstown first? Who's yes, this? Let's do that. That's um, Gaylene Hasty from Queenstown. She's a nurse practitioner and has been working um, in the Queenstown community for a number of years. So Queenstown is a community of around 30,000 ratepayers. Our ratio of of ratepayer to tourist is 1 to 30, which is the highest in New Zealand. Um, And on any given day, we can have up to 50,000 tourists in our our town. Um, It is um, quite a centralised community amongst mountains. So we have phenomenal adventure tourism. Um, which is a draw card. We have amazing scenery as, you know, any window I look out of my home and I'm in awe of what I see out the window. Um, And we have, we considered a decile, a high decile um, uh, community, both in health and in education. We have one high school. We have uh, six, seven primary schools. Um, and we have seen phenomenal growth in our, our community, not only in tourist numbers, but also in population, um, probably over the last five to ten years. Um, it has become a desirable place to move to and raise a family. Uh, but alongside that, we also have one of the highest costs of living in the country. So in particular around um, rentals, uh, rental properties for families, it would be nothing to be paying up to $1,000 a week. Um, for a three-bedroom home. So you have that side of our community as well. Um, We have a significant amount of hospitality and tourism workers, 
which many of those people are actually um, people uh, who are here on work visas or sponsorship visas. So large population of South American people who are the backbone of our community. So for them at the moment, it's um, with job losses, um, them not being able to travel to their home countries is the other thing. Um, you know, expiring visas, there's all of the welfare stuff that goes on behind the scenes that has, is now our tidal wave in our community. So yes, COVID might be gone, but we're only gonna just start seeing all of that stuff coming through from now on. Yeah, so I um, have a role at Queenstown Medical Centre. So I have been doing 32 hours a week patient facing. So I have a mixture of general practice. So GP um, type 15 minute consultations booked, um, which can be anything that any of my patients come in for. I work across the lifespan from um, antenatal right through to the elderly. I also do two or three clinics a week in our walk-in clinic, which is our accident and medical facility, which is um, pretty much a tourist presentation. So people who are here on holiday or traveling that are, become unwell or those who have had an accident. You know, we have a um, huge uh, biking population in Queenstown, phenomenal trails. So there's often lots of bike accidents um, or injuries. We have a um, significant downhill mountain biking park right behind the practice. Um, so I can see anything from dislocations to fractures to uh, broken wrists to sprained knees in winter from skiing to the normal coughs and colds to the people who have, have come away without enough medication. And that's one of the biggest things that we saw in those few days when our borders closed. You know, it was all these, um, all um, these unfortunate uh, tourists who couldn't get home or you know, we're, and I've got one lovely 85 year old couple who I've just seen still, because they're still trying to get home. Um, and we're going to have enough medication, you know, and so, and trying to sort themselves accommodation, sort their medications, everything that goes with that. So it's, um, yeah, my role is varied and I love it. It's, it's a fantastic role. I um, love patient facing and I love making a difference. Um, you know, it not, might, might not always be a, a, a good difference you know if you think about uh, people who are dying but it's about making the best of the situation for them and what they're going through at the time and um, fluidity because that's what we've had to do um, we we were really fortunate because we, we're we're a tourist town so we can have up to 50,000 tourist visitors a day so very early on, probably in February, we started seeing patients that were concerned potentially could be COVID patients. So these were tourists that were coming through our community. And so we kind of had a heightened sense early on in the piece before um, the Ministry of Health and things started really ramping up here. So very early on in the piece, at the end of February, we activated our pandemic emergency management team. So there was a group of six of us who pulled together for our practice. We have a staff of 70, so we are a large practice, um, and decided that we needed to get some things in place pretty quickly because at that stage, of course, the tourists were continuing to come through our doors. So we um, started meeting on a twice-weekly basis. So our pandemic team met on a Monday and on a Friday and started putting in some place um, solutions for our practice. So we set up isolation tents um, out the back of our practice. We have two large isolation tents. 
So one where our patients were triaged and one where the patients were seen in or probably more of a waiting area for our patients and one that was where our patients was, were seen in full PPE, which um, our flow and our process was activated pretty early on in the scene. So we, um, on feedback we've now had back, we were probably two or three weeks ahead of the game. So when the announcements made, it was like, yep, okay, business as usual for us. The one big thing we had to change, of course, we didn't need to change our setup and our isolation processes, but of course we had to change our normal GP consults, so the 70-30 split of teleconsults versus face-to-face. -face. And so once we went into level four, we were well well prepared, I'd have to say. Um, and when we did, as soon as we went into level four, we started um, working really, really closely with our council. Um, and I have to say, building relationships at a time like this and having good relationships in your community is key. And I remember, um, of course, by this stage, our weather was, we were going into autumn, so our weather was getting cold. Um, we had a flood in our isolation tents one day because we had an absolute deluge of rain. How can we keep ahead of this? So we also had to change our thinking. Because initially, we were like, actually, we don't want any of this COVID. But the reality being is the tourists stopped come back, coming. It was actually our local patients and our own enrolled patients that were the COVID-positive patients. So we needed to look after them. And so we, at that stage, that's when we activated council to say, hey, look, we really need help. We need some help with um, blocking off parking in our streets. We need help with structures. We need help with road cones and signage and all of those kinds of things. And I was really fortunate to um, work with an amazing team from council um, who it seemed to be that we asked and the next thing it appeared. So it was fabulous. Um, flow and our council was really quick at, at activating their civil defence process to get this all underway and, and release the services that we were asking for. So we were also really keen to when um, CBAC came um, and we worked really closely with CBAC because we would be swabbing 20, 30, 40 people a day. If you can imagine this is going through isolation, we had to double staff our services and we had a large walk-in clinic. And so once our borders got closed, we knew we weren't going to deal too much more with tourists, but it was definitely about our local. And of course, by then, we'd actually had our first, um, the first run of our COVID positive patients. So they were already in our community. So you're already dealing with them, looking after them. You've got tourists who are COVID positive that can't travel. So you've got all of the welfare stuff that's also going on around you. So council were amazing at also setting up that for us. And um, we basically, if we had anybody who had welfare problems in those days when the borders got closed quite quickly, it was an email to council, council contacted the people directly, you know, with their consent, of course. But um, and council took over that side of welfare. So that was, to work as a team was absolutely unbelievable. Um, and then as we've kind of gone on, we've had to, um, so our emergency management team stayed in place basically until we got to level two. And interesting, I've just been part of probably one of our last sessions this morning as we ramped right down to level one. It was a really good way for communication because communication was really good. So there was two emails that were sent out every day. So one was an operations email from the emergency management team. And one was an email from our CEO around welfare and looking after each other, those types of things, um, you know, 
around anxiety and the not knowing and how and, and our own staff welfare, which was really good. And the other way we communicated, you know, we're part of a healthcare home. We are a healthcare home and well embedded with that. And we were having huddles. So every day we huddled at distance because of course we needed to be practicing social distancing. So our huddles grew from our staff room out into our massive waiting area. And then one day they were in our car park because we had too many of us to be huddling together. And that was a really good way for us to communicate with what was going on, what needed to be in place, and particularly when you have change. By this stage, you know, when we hit March, we needed to bring our isolation facility inside our building because the weather was just so cold and we needed to set things up. So we took over, we basically divided our building in half um, at our main Isle Street branch where we made a green stream and a red stream had three isolation rooms with full doffing and donning rooms, full change rooms for all of our staff. We completely went um, and had it all set up and it was absolutely brilliant. The other two practices that we also have, we made them green stream practices. So nobody could go to those practices and they were all screened. So we took off our online book system. Everyone had to be screened through the telephone, which of course that came with its own challenges of putting telephonists on. Um, and they were screened so that we made sure that nobody went to those practices with a cough or cold or a so and all along while this is going on of course we've got flu vaccines coming into our community so we actually took over another building um, in the district that became our vaccination building so and we did drive by car park so we, all our mums and babies also were vaccinated at that practice um, or at that building so they weren't even coming into our service a really safe way for us to manage it so it's been we were fortunate we were really really um, ready and our process um, and our flow we were really quick at getting flow charts you know one page documents of patient presents this is what you need to do so you know using some of the ministry stuff but adapting it for our environment because in that early stage you'll be really aware the guidelines around testing change you know and and we had already seen the week before a lot of people that we were like, these to be COVID positive patients. They didn't fit the criteria for screening. There was lots of restrictions around screening them. And so when the, the criteria loosened, we called those people back in and got them tested because they were still unwell at that stage. So that's how we managed to just keep on top of, top of things. The other thing um, which I am really, really proud of as, as a practice, we very early on in the piece, realised that patients weren't going to come and see us. They were going to stay away from us as much as they could because of, of their own fear around contracting COVID in the practice. So we activated a um, project called COVWELL, which basically is a um, COVID wellness phone call that we made nearly 1,500 phone calls. Our staff were amazing, our clinical staff, nurses and doctors, made these phone calls to all our high-risk patients that were registered with us at the practice. And this was about a seven or eight-minute phone call, making sure that they, they were well, that they understood what isolation, um, you know, if they needed to go into isolation, what that meant and what it looked like, making sure they had support around them, making sure that they had somebody, if they were elderly, doing their shopping, et cetera, making sure they had all their long-term medications, how to contact us as a practice if they needed us and what to do also when they were sick or unwell or became unwell. Um, and the feedback has been phenomenal around that. It's a project that's well worth writing up because it was it was the goodwill that uh, as a practice that we have done for our community. For them to know that actually you are on the end of a telephone 
if I do get sick. And for those patients who didn't have family to care, because the reality is most of us have moved here away from our significant families, connecting them with council. So by that stage, council welfare was well underway. And, you know, I saw one man, elderly man in the early days, and he was like, I really need to go to the supermarket, but I just don't know, you know, an 80-year-old man. So it was a phone call to council. And by that afternoon, the shopping was done for him. So it's that kind of community buy-in and communities working together, which I think you really have in rural areas, has been. The other thing, it's definitely changed our practice. Um, I think it's made us more aware and of um, infection control procedures, um, <laughs> you know, everything. It's just, we've, we've just had a massive overhaul in everything we kind of do, right down to our cleaning. You know, it's all of those things kind of just take for granted happen and or something like, and none of us have been here before so for all of us this is a really new thing so it's just made us revisit a lot of things that we probably haven't visited in a long time but it has been I think and I, I laugh at this um, often now and because I'm part of the um, healthcare homes team that have brought healthcare homes to our practice and the interesting thing is, is that we've been trying to bring in teleconsult and video consulting over the last 12 months. And there's been a little bit of resistance to the change. And all of a sudden overnight, we have no choice. And it is here on our, on our lap and how everyone's just um, adapted and accommodated that change and got on with it. So that has been really, really um, good to as well. It's been great. And it's about access. You know, patients, A, don't want to come in. Some of them don't have transport. And so it's delivering healthcare in a different way for those patients. Absolutely brilliant. And again, the other thing that's been really, really lovely is around the fact that um, appreciation from the people in your community. You know, I, I, my family wouldn't do the supermarket shop. So it was me who got nominated for the supermarket shop as well. And just people seeing you in the supermarket going, thank you, thank you for what you're doing. It's like, I go, but it's part of my job. That's what I'm there to do. And they're like, no, truly, thank you. It was just, it has been really, really humbling experience. And I think just going back to our preparedness, um, just to give you an idea of how prepared we were, we, there had been quite a lot of modelling done for our district and the numbers, when you looked at the numbers, you were like, oh, actually, these are really quite scary for the size of our community and for the size of our local hospital. And so we'd even prepared for if as staff members we needed to move out of our family homes we had accommodation organised as a staff that we could go into if A, we contracted COVID, so you needed to isolate on your own, and B, if it did really um, escalate what like we were expecting, then we had, would choose to move out away from our significant others and be based at a, at a, a property in town. So the accommodation was all organised, you know, the everything around what we needed to do was there ready to be activated at the drop of it. Kind of hadn't left any stone unturned, really. Um, you know, community spirit around businesses that were closing down. You know, people just arrived with things like bags of coffee beans and, um, you know, cafes delivered food that, that was just going to be thrown out in those initial days. So it's, it's, it is definitely that community spirit because they knew we were going to be open. They knew we were going to be open and that we would be continuing business as usual. So it has been, um, at, at times, you know, quite frightening because you're like, what's coming tomorrow? I don't, you know, I have to say, part of that team, I have had sleepless nights, as have a lot of us. Um, but it has actually been, when I look back at it and just was reflecting coming into this interview, it's actually been also a really, really good being part of. So rural communities adapting to COVID-19, I think, um, 
you know, our tourists have, our tourists have gone is the reality. And we are now back to community and it's all locals. So um, as far as adapting, you know, things are not great here in our community. We have phenomenal unemployment. We have redundancies left, right and centre. But at the heart of it is those people who truly love this community and to them this community is home. And that has been really nice because we we rally around each other. You know, we rally around each other, we support each other. Um, so it's definitely brought back the heart of our, of our local community and of our Queenstown community. So Gaylene, you're saying that you are working very closely with the council um, and the um, and the community people, um, civil defence, to ensure that you're all working together to the best um, for the community. So where to the future for for this work? That's um, quite positive, Gaylene. So. Um short term here in Queenstown it's pretty grim it's pretty grim and we've started to see the fallout of it so the fallout for us post-COVID and in this recovery phase as we try and get back on our seat and on our feet so for primary care it's been pretty grim because of course if you think for us um, when you 50% of our, our patients were tourists so that's 50% of our, our business gone um, it's an opportunity for us to refocus and relook at how we do do things and how we deliver care, um, which we've gone through our first stage of restructure um, at level two. We went through that to plan for the next three months so that we can all survive. And as for our community, it's really grim. Um, you know, so there's something like 60% unemployment in hospitality and tourism. And so those people are here not working and trying to survive in what has been a really, really um, market of, you know, high rents, etc. We're starting to see a lot of mental health um, issues and uh, so, you know, financial strain, it's the mental health stuff. Um, there's quite a lot of drug use we're seeing coming through, um, which I guess is people, you know, the escapism of what's happening and people trying to deal with that. Um, and, and we're going to start to see you know, the whole roll-on effect to our kids in schools and the activities that can occur in schools and everything else that goes on with the community. I think, honestly, we're probably not going to see Queenstown, um, you know, until our borders open, we're not going to see tourists. That's the reality. And so it is a really, really different landscape for us. Part of me is really excited because we've got a ski season coming up and it's so lovely when you're a local and the ski fields aren't crowded. But the other part of me, so that's my emotional side of me, but the social and economic side of me goes, actually, we need them back. Please get them back to us. So it will be interesting to see what, what comes of the next wee while. Um, I think, you know, we're still on the doing telephone consults. We're trying to really ramp up on video cons consultation. So th the way we deliver care, it's a really good opportunity for us to embed some of that, that practice that we've changed during COVID and get it get it really into place and, and working for patients. So we're also part of a welfare program with um, the council um, and we're providing a clinician to see patients who cannot afford to um, pay. Absolutely and that's the lovely thing is that you know 
I saw a patient last night, you know, a dad with two children that is hardly hardly making ends meet and putting the food on the table. And, you know, he, he became all emotional because yesterday his food parcels just appeared on his door and he has no idea who nominated him, you know. And it's just like, but as a community, that's what should happen. And so that is, you know, that just my heart, I just had warm fuzzies in my heart thinking, you know, I can help you with the other side of the stuff. Somebody is helping helping you with that. You know, it's all of that that's going on. So we've got some incredibly generous people in our community who are putting in huge hours volunteering and assisting with with the community spirit, which is truly brilliant. Um, yeah. I don't think so. I think I need to sh- I need to make a massive shout out to our first impressions team, which is our reception and our admin team. And in the early days, we um, we called her our guard dog, but she's not our guard dog. We got somebody on the front door of our practice who screened every single person that came to our front door. And she is worth, she's just worth millions. She has done the most amazing job over the last 10 weeks with a smile on her face, at times being shouted at as people are stressed and presenting. But she, but she's just done the most amazing job. And, you know, there's been a couple of them who have done it the whole time. And it has been. It's, it's provided us with security and, and helped us feel safe in the workplace. It's been absolutely. So, no, they've done a great job. And I think the, the thing is, is that my motto has always been about making a difference. And I think I can honestly say with hand on heart that um, Queenstown Medical Centre has made a difference. You know, we've been part of a, a of a worldwide phenomenon and we have made a difference. We have made a difference to every single person who has put in our door, whether they had COVID or didn't have COVID, whether they were fearful of what was happening, whether, you know, what it was about. And I think we need to be really proud of how we have come to a team, as a team. You know, and, the, and I, there's one song that I did think about is, um, we are the one, and, you know, from Live Aid and, you know, um, and it is about coming together as a group and pulling together in times of need and, and making the best of what you've got coming in.
that could be an anthem for nursing. Time to lend a hand to the greatest gift of all. Saving a life. Yes. Who do we have next? Okay, we have um, Di Pollard from the West Coast. She lives near Greymouth but works in the hospital, uh, the rural hospital on the in Greymouth on the West Coast. So Di Pollard, um, at the start of COVID, went through some quite significant family emergency. And uh, I'd just like to um, uh, dedicate that, um, the work that she, she did whilst whilst one family member was very unwell and she carried on working in the community. I went back to work about 10 days later and I'd already, I'd already been following what was in the news. We were already preparing at the hospital to set up an isolation ward. I had already offered as a critical care nurse to go and work in the isolation ward. So I had made plans at home to be ready for this. Um, it was huge deciding that I might not be home for a few weeks because in the light of him having heart attack, I wasn't prepared to come straight home if we got positive patients. So I, at home, I just prepared stocking things up for him because he couldn't drive for four weeks. So, you know, I did all the stocking up here at home. We talked about it extensively. I talked about it at work. What were the preparations in place for staff? Should we have positive patients and staff not wish to go home? And they were very clear there would be accommodation. And then, of course, we had the first patient in the country to die of COVID, which I have been in an immensely privileged situation, and I don't consider myself a hero. I think as nurses, we've been privileged. And as health professionals, we stepped into these roles knowing that infectious illnesses was part of what we would nurse. Always knew that. I think the heroes are things like our supermarket people who never walked into their job expecting to be dealing with this sort of thing. So I had the huge privilege of looking after that lady. It was before we had our isolation ward up and running. And none of us as nurses had, who were going to work in the area, in fact, I was probably one of the few that actually put their hands up and said, I'll do this before it was ever opened. So I was mentally probably more prepared than others. But we looked after her in our critical care unit, um, in our isolation area there. And I was well aware that she was not going to survive this. Um, but it was really, really hard. And the day it was the day she was confirmed as having COVID was the day I didn't come home for two weeks. And so I was housed in a hospital house for two weeks. They were absolutely brilliant about it. I had the house for as long as I chose to feel that I needed to stay there. So she passed away early on the Sunday morning and we, the cleaner and I spent Sunday after, all day Sunday doing what I called a virginalization of the critical care unit. We literally cleaned every space and every object and scrubbed and cleaned. That afternoon, the isolation ward opened for the first time because they got the first possible patient. And I worked in there the following morning with a colleague and it was fascinating. It was an, I've read some of the government documents about the government's preparedness for this and how they scrambled. And I completely, my heart goes out to them because we scrambled. Um, the, the area was stopped by people who weren't cl necessarily clinically on the floor. So we had some amusing moments sorting things out. And it did take a bit. But we ran the unit for about four weeks, solidly. Um, we had three nurses on every shift. 
and my role became very much a coordinator in the unit because I was the most, there was only two critical care nurses, unit nurses working in there among the 12 roughly that were there. And the other was not as experienced as me. And so I became kind of the informally nominated coordinator of the place, which meant from the nursing perspective, very much trying to make sure we were very, we were put in touch with the basics for nursing online course. We had nurses looking at that, but my primary goal was to try and make nurses comfortable with what they were doing and what the patients could potentially be like. A lot of my colleagues I was working with were surgically based nurses, not medically based nurses. So respiratory illness was something they were challenged by. And the thought of having patients in this area when there was literally three of us on shift, Medical staff were limited to the senior medical staff coming in. We had very few visits from anybody other than the senior medical staff. So we were in our little own little bubble very, very much every day. We had a, a plastic curtain at the entrance and everybody spoke to us through the curtain. So you were very, very much on your own. So it was part of my greatest concern was to set nurses up to feel that they could manage the patients and that was things like going through with them um, how to manage respiratory patients that are deteriorating and one of our senior medical guys who's actually a real medicine specialist had put in we had two patients one afternoon who were both potentially likely to deteriorate and he came up with a really excellent plan of administering oxygen when he wanted to be notified he had made sure that medical staff, like the anaesthetist, he'd spoken to intensive care. We knew what we were going to do for this person. I wanted to make sure the staff were comfortable with that and use that plan for other patients so that people knew when to escalate care, when to speak up, who to speak up to, felt that they had the right to do that and that they were doing it at the right time. And why the rationale for that, really around the whole point of it is going to take people time to get into their PPE. It's not a two-minute job to walk in the door. You have got to get all gowned up. You've got to make sure that they're appropriately safe. So all of that. We also had to set up an area. What we had was it used to be the paediatric ward prior to COVID. So we had four single rooms, two on each side, two open bays. We had to decide where we would manage a patient who was deteriorating seriously to the point that they could potentially end up ventilated. And that couldn't be done in these small four, um, single rooms. They were too small. So we set up a side bay that we felt we could use. And part of my role there was, one, I got a mannequin, so people actually had something on a bed that they could look at and go, okay, this is what we, you know, visualise a person. I went through the emergency trolley with people who weren't necessarily familiar with how do you put a Goodell down? They hadn't done it in a long time. How do you use a nasopharyngeal mask? What does the anaesthetist require? And I made sure that the senior medical staff, the rural medicine specialists, the anaesthetist knew, and the anaesthetic techs, because I got them to come and visit the area and see where we would be working, that the nurses around them weren't, weren't trained at CCU level, that they would need to be guided. They would need to have help to understand their role. And I just said what were seemingly straightforward things that I could imagine in an emergency being, being really vital, saying to nurses, this is the pieces of furniture and equipment you get out of the area because this is what vitally you need in here. We had some of our advanced airway equipment 
put away in another preparation room so that it was always kept clean and didn't have to be, you know, it wasn't at risk of being becoming infective. They needed to know where that was and when to bring it. We needed the orderlies teed up to go and get the ventilator and other equipment from what was the old CCU. Because on top of setting up an isolation ward, we also, the Friday that it was determined that the lady should move from the medical ward to the critical care unit, they closed the medical ward down. They literally moved all the patients from the medical ward up to the surgical ward and it became an integrated surgical ward, medical ward. And at that initial stage, it was still also the day stat surgery unit. So on one floor, plus you've got rehabilitating patients. That's how, as a rural hospital, we had to manage this because we lost 22 staff when the lady was deemed positive. We were very, very fortunate and massively grateful to the nurses who came over from particularly Christchurch, and I think one came down from Westport, to help us through that period. And we've still got at least one Christchurch nurse with us. Our middle management level, our operations manager, our clinical nurse specialists who were coming all the time, our duty managers who would come to the what I call the outside of our Doctor Who portal and you know, be there to support us. Um, the the laundry lady, you know, who organised our uniforms so that I would talk to her just about every day to, to update her on our linen requirements and our, our uniform requirements. The kitchen staff providing the meals. Our poor orderlies who were absolutely petrified about the fact that they might be at risk coming into our area and understanding what was clean and what was dirty, where they were safe and where they weren't. And all these things had to happen. One of my big concerns at the moment, though, is that we've got so focused on COVID, we can't forget that we've got flu. And we've still got the challenge now in our merged, in our integrated ward of, and I keep, this keeps buzzing around in my head, if we get a lot of patients who come in very ill with respiratory illnesses, they still have to be isolated and we limit space. And how are we going to continue doing surgery and having these patients? You know, this, this is a juggle we haven't quite worked yet. And our new hospital has very limited side single rooms. So isolation is going to be an issue going forward. And I, none of us could have perceived that we would have a pandemic. And I'm sure the whole country is thinking that. But our isolation ward that we had is at the moment in standby. It's not being it's not being deconstructed completely because in case we have to walk back in there and reconstruct it a bit more and go back in and use it again. Actually, we're really lucky. Right now, we've got nursing students as well. I mean, this has been an incredible time for us. We've not only got staff who have stayed because they couldn't go away overseas like they planned. We've got new staff arriving. Um, some who have, some are New Zealand nurses who have come to the West Coast because they wanted a different challenge in nursing. Fortunately, some are coming that have got integrated medical surgical skills. And one I was speaking to the other day who's just come to the coast, um, she has actually had worked in a small, smaller rural hospital or, you know, smaller secondary hospital where she did an integrated blend of medical surgical nursing. And then she worked in a tertiary hospital and did purely sort of surgical based and one discipline of nursing. And she said she was drawn back to the integrated idea of medical surgical nursing. She likes that. That is what she feels is really good for her. 
and you know we've got nurses who come from overseas so at the moment we've got this huge challenge of we are we have got newly graduated nurses in their first year of net pay we've got nurse new nurses who are just arriving we've got some who are adjusting to the fact they're not going away and their plans have changed and we've got students and the students we've got are saying this is an experience they couldn't have believed they would be lucky enough to have that they're not just nursing medical patients or surgical patients their their b2 placement is an acute merge of medical surgical so they're really enjoying it and if i you know so i would say to rural nurses that nurses that want to look at doing rural it's a huge chance to get if you know it, it's a great incredible place to get a basis of nursing to to flourish from if you know and i'm not saying that you know you always should just start in hospital nursing but if you've got an interest in hospital nursing and then you think you might want to go and do rural um, nurse specialists out in a sole practice setting or do district nursing or practice nursing it is a as an integrated hospital an integrated area it is a great starting and we're lucky in our small rural hospitals because our district nurses are based in our rural hospitals and they come in and out of our wards as well you know they're part of our ward team as is everybody else our gp practices are run from our hospital you know our public health nurses all of it is all part of our hospital and when you come as a nursing student or as a new grad and a new grad program you have such a personal relationship with people like our cl clinical nurse specialists and respiratory and cardiac and stroke are in the ward all the time like for instance the other day been looking after a palliative patient that had just been admitted over the weekend and i was talking to the palliative care nurse on the monday and just talking to her about what i had observed and what had been happening for the patient and his family from the time he was admitted up until that moment to give her a bit of more history to help she already knew him from the community but to give her some update and fill in some information about how he was managing how his family were managing so the planning forward for his discharge could be enhanced and added to we have a hugely close relationship with mental health staff i can actually see how close you do work together interdisciplinary transdisciplinary people um in a variety of different um specialities of healthcare in one small area and um that's that seems like um a, a model for the future I just think that we are a very passionate group of people that live on the coast um, and we're very dedicated to each other. People reach out to each other very much and the, the connection that people make is incredible. Um, yeah, I just think I love, yeah, I love that connection and that openness to reach out. If I was, yeah, I, if I, I would say thank you to the west coast for being open for reaching out and for being incredibly patient a lot of people i know there's been some people get very angry and upset when they haven't been able to visit but there's been a huge amount of sincere gratitude and i just don't see nurses as heroes because we knew what we were getting into but i think the way that people have managed their lives has been heroic in the you know, in this horrid unknown that we were all thrown into so suddenly, 
And I think there's been huge, yeah, huge. People have been very, very patient overall. Very, very patient. I was thinking about Mason Jury's four-cornered house. To me, New Zealand, and I certainly put the coast in this, is the person in the middle of that four-cornered house. And I was saying this actually to a Maori lady the other day, that I feel like we as New Zealanders have come together that it so personifies the four-cornered house. When we are ill, when the West Coast is ill, it affects our physical health because we've had ill people. It's suspected our spirituality because people haven't been able to get together. They haven't been able to go to church. They've had to commune in different ways. Our mental health's been affected because there's been a lot of massive anxiety, countrywide, coastwide. People just wanted the coast to stay shut so that we would be safe. And I completely understand that. And emotions have been brought up. People have been frightened. But family, connectedness as a living on the coast, as a part of this coast family, has been really important. And I just think Mason Jury's works for this situation massively, for our region and for our country. Well, thank you, Jean, for the opportunity. I hope it's helpful. Diana was talking about the importance of models of understanding, models of practice. What have we learned about those models from all these people we've been talking to? Yeah, yes, that's a good reflection, Sam. Um, A number of the nurses we've interviewed, I've interviewed, have talked about models and frameworks of for practice and of practice. So, of course, this one that Di's been talking about is from Mason Dury, so it really does um, acknowledge um, the Maori um, view of the world. And that's another thing that actually we can take from this is how are we going to view the world or how are we viewing the world at this current minute? But on reflection, how will we move that forward for the new normal, which would be significant, um, I think. Um, and so, so do those models of practice stand up to the to the stress of practicing in a pandemic? No, not 100%. I think they, they're good, solid pillars, directions. But I think that one thing we've been learning from my colleagues um, are that there are a number of significant areas that are focusing on nursing. And as I've said in many times, good communication, good teamwork, um, adapting, adjusting, but actually really being responsive to community-driven need. Um, and as we heard from um, Gaylene, uh, the strength of the community coming together. And I think that we can learn a lot from this. And it would be an interesting exercise to pull all this together and see what are the gems that come out of this. In terms of the creating the, the new normal, in terms of nursing practice, do you think it's a recovery? Is it a regeneration? What what has it told us about the, where we're going? Uh, it's not recovery. It's a re- regeneration. I think nurses, this is what's quite exciting, nurses are being very eloquent in their practice. Um, They have demonstrated that they are responsive, yes, to community, but they're being being, um, uh, very much being part of the community. Um, And as, as Gaylene said, you know, people thank me. But I'm saying that this is my work. This is my job. And they say, no, thank you. We normally end these shows with a, a set of questions, one of which is the the superpower question. So we're writing a book of these 
these interviews, mm-hmm. these conversations, um, the team of people doing good work. And we're putting all of those nurses, all of those practice nurses into that into that team of, of superheroes. Is there a common superpower? Oh, I think it is um, <clears throat> believing in yourself, believing in what you need to do and getting it done. As um, as we've heard many times, there is no um, recipe book for this, what we're in, and we're creating that as we're moving along. Um, and I think it's uh, really to be acknowledged that these nurses are working to the to the, um, ex- the the boundaries of their practice and doing something completely new, innovative that's never been done before, um, in a context that's global and rural. That's interesting because we're getting that quite a lot from people who it's who are saying it's not just working from home; you're working from home and surviving a pandemic. But yeah. nurses are partly working from home, partly not surviving a pandemic and helping us survive a pandemic. Yes, yes. Um, and as we've heard from previous interviews, um, the nurse has been the first point of contact. The nurse has been the person that the community people want to confirm, are they doing the right thing? What should they be doing next? Um, so very much uh, not just um, providing you know, everyday health care, but being the educator, being the role model, uh, being the go-to person whilst they're in the, 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 the midst of it all. We ask again everybody to, if they have any advice for our listeners, do do you, Jean, have any advice for our listeners? Okay, th- Sam, thank you. I'd like to offer my sincere appreciation of the nurses that I've interviewed for their um, time and their dedication, and overall to thank each and every rural nurse in New Zealand for their work that they're continuing to do to look after our rural population. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've had contributions today from Gaylene Hasty in Queenstown and Di Pollard on the West Coast. I'm Samuel Manon Sawyers Bay Dunedin with Jean Ross today in Wanaka. We hope you enjoyed the show. And when I touch you, I feel happy inside. It's such a feeling that my love.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.